Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tahir. Jirgelekter. Sakula Ijaz. Food. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Sfin podcast. I'm Valentina Gritti and today we're going to have a very special episode uh, about the common agricultural policy and the farm to fork strategy. So it's going to be an episode dedicated to Europe and we have two very special hosts today, uh, Ines Jordana and Madeleine Cost. Uh, Ines has a background in environmental sciences, territorial planning and rural development and she has gained a great understanding of the importance of policy integration and networking thanks to over 10 years of working experience. Between 2010 and 2012, she worked as cabinet assistant in the Ministry of Environment, Marine and Rural Affairs in Spain. And in 2012, she moved to Brussels to be part of the permanent team of the European Network for Rural Development Content Point. In 2016, Ines moved to Madrid to lead the Food and Agricultural Department in the Spanish Ornithological Society, member of BirdLife International, where she coordinated the BirdLife Europe Agriculture Task Force and worked to set up and coordinate the Spanish National Coalition Por Otra PAC for another common agricultural policy. She is convinced that to find a long-term solution to sustainability, networking is the key, and for this reason, she moved back to Brussels in 2019. She is now the coordinator of the EU Food Policy Coalition, a coalition of over 40 organizations advocating for policy integration and alignment at the EU level for transition to sustainable food system. So thank you so much, Ines, for being here. Thanks to you. And uh, Madeleine Cost, uh, she's part of Slow Food. She is an EU food policy officer at the Slow Food International Office in Brussels. And here she advocates for sustainable food policies. Her work focuses on ma- making the Slow Food Network's voice heard in the European capital on a variety of food policy topics, such as pesticides, GMOs and biodiversity, highlighting the work of small-scale farmers, cooks and activists who fight for a more sustainable and fair food system. Before joining Slow Food, Madeleine completed a master's in food policy where she got the opportunity to learn about the importance and mechanism of integrated food policies and policy coherence and to work on the complexities of our current food systems. And thank you, Madeleine, also for being here. Thank you. Okay, so today we're going to have an interview together uh, to understand a bit more what is the farm to fork strategy, what is the common agricultural policy, and also what is our role as citizens. But like starting really from the beginning, uh, I would like to ask Madeleine uh, a, a general question so about the farm to fork strategy. So what is exactly, Madeleine, the farm to fork strategy and how strict it is also for, the, uh, for Europe? Yeah, thanks so much for the question. Um, so the farm to fork strategy, it's a new strategy that was proposed by the European Commission earlier this year. And it falls under the new EU Green Deal, which is a new umbrella strategy with the aim of making the EU's economy more sustainable. 
So the EU Green Deal includes several other aspects as well, including strategies on energy, on the circular economy, on pollution, etc. And it includes a whole strategy on food and agriculture, which is called the Farm to Fork Strategy. Um, the aim of the Farm to Fork Strategy in its title is to accelerate the transition to a sustainable food system. So the food system that we have today in Europe uh, is able to provide Europeans with a lot of food. A lot of it is very tasty and it can be very healthy. Some of it is produced in a sustainable way with small scale farmers uh, through well thought through production methods, for example. But there's also a lot of problems with our European food system, and most of us already know these by now. Uh, we have issues from a health perspective, an environmental perspective, and a social perspective. We know, for example, that we have an increasing rate of overweight and obesity, particularly in children. We have a rise of food-related diseases like cancers and cardiovascular diseases. And on the environmental side, we have a lot of food production that is still done in an industrial way. And of course, we know that this is very polluting to our soils, our air, our water. Our soils are being depleted by certain agricultural techniques. And we really have more and more evidence now that industrial farming is driving both biodiversity loss and greatly contributing to climate change. And finally, the food system that we have now is not even paying our farmers well, nor the people working on the farms. So we need to address all of these problems at the same time. We can't address only the environmental aspect without taking into consideration the effects on people's health or on farmers' livelihoods. In other words, we need to take a systems approach. And this is precisely what the farm to fork strategy is supposed to do. It's been described as a holistic strategy that will aim to improve various aspects of the food system or the food chain. So the farm to fork. Um, your question was about uh, whether it's binding or not. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's a great question because what's the point of the strategy? Um, so as I said, it's a strategy that proposes different measures. And in fact, it has 27 measures to make the food system more sustainable. Uh, it's a 10 year strategy. And some of these measures are targets. Others are proposals for changing a law. Others are proposals of new strategies. Um, so maybe I can describe a few of these measures because otherwise it, it doesn't become very concrete in people's minds. But um, the strategy includes targets, for example, to reduce the use of pesticides by 50% by 2030. And it also includes a target to increase the land cultivated under organic production to 25% by 2030. It proposes to improve the sustainability criteria for public procurement, which is the food sold in public institutions like in schools or hospitals. And there's also an aspect of the strategy that tries to address the impact of European food systems abroad. For example, it says that the EU trade policy should be used to raise the standards on sustainability and obtain more ambitious commitment from trading partners. For example, on raising the standards on animal welfare or pesticides for products that we trade with these other countries. But um, something that's really important to answer your question is that the farm to fork strategy, it's not a law and it's not binding per se. Uh, the targets that it proposes are proposals. Those also are not binding, but they can be made binding through legislation. So, for example, the strategy proposes that the pesticides reduction targets can be achieved through reforming the sustainable use of pesticides directive or law, which each country must follow and inscribe into their national law. Another really concrete example is the proposal it makes on labeling. Currently in the EU, the labeling of origin of a product is only necessary for a few products like beef, fruit, vegetables, fish, honey, olive oil and eggs. The strategy proposes to extend this to other products, 
So some countries are already going beyond this mandatory list uh, from the EU, uh, but others are sticking to the minimum. And the farm to fork strategy is therefore proposing to extend this list further so that member states will have to comply. So your question was, how strict is it? Well, it's not very strict, but it's, it is detailed and it gives several opportunities for real legislative reform, which means that many of the actions proposed can become binding. Okay, so the final decision is of the member states. Yes, it all depends on how well the member states will be implementing these different proposals. But the EU still has a big role to play. And since when do we have the farm-to-fork strategy? So the farm-to-fork strategy was uh, officially announced in May 2020. That's when we received the strategy uh, at the same time as we received the biodiversity strategy for 2030. Okay, so the member states could already start to implement the measures of the farm-to-fork strategy now. Yes, they have to start uh, getting ready. And also, it's, um, it already comes into play into their national strategic plans of the CAP, which Ines is going to explain further. But in any case, yes, the member states need to start uh, implementing and working towards the objectives of the farm to fork strategy. Thank you, Madeleine. It, it was very, very interesting. And uh, yeah, and so like, Ines, can you, can you tell us something about uh, yeah, the current cap proposal uh, like what is wrong with it because we uh, we know there has been uh, quite some um, protests from the climate movement in Europe uh, because the new cap is not really setting like more sustainability standards uh, as we were expecting but maybe like before that it would be nice if you could give us like um, an overview about like what the cap is and also like what the cap used to be before and like what is the one that we have now yes i'll i'll try to make a short introduction for all the listeners about what's the common agricultural policy so that's the famous cup well famous now because it's actually a monster policy that very few people know about but uh luckily we are getting more and more attention into this very important file Uh, because nothing really conditions more our land use uh, and our food as, as the agricultural policy. Um, maybe I can start with uh, explaining that this is one of the oldest policies that we have in the European Union, um, because it was um, set up since the 60s in, in the Union's treaties. The objectives there were, uh, you can imagine, after World War II, The, the main objectives were to, to ensure food security, price stability, um, and then the, the, the policy was set up. Uh, but then, of course, more objectives have been added as uh, the EU kept on evolving and the citizens incorporated uh, other important areas of concern because now right for a healthy environment and a socially just union is as important as food security as it was understood after the war. This is um, also a policy that follows just as any other European policy uh, a cycle. So basically the European Union has to work in this, uh, that every few years they set up a proposal, they discuss it with the member states and with the parliament. They, they, they give green light to implement that policy. Uh, and then through monitoring and evaluation, there is always an assessment period for was that policy working or was it not working? Can it be improved? Uh, and then a new policy cycle would start with a new proposal 
um, and so on. So actually, the common agricultural policy has been reformed uh, many times, uh, and it's just one of the, the one of the policies that doesn't seem to get it right because it's very complex. And well, there is uh, many reasons why this happened. Um, uh, but as I said, there were the conflicting objectives from the beginning. So it was set up with certain objectives and then new ones were added. So that makes it very difficult to, to amend. Uh, there is also very complex regulations um, that condition a lot uh, the implementation of the policy. And, um, and there is also a lot of interest in stakeholder groups into getting some outcomes and not others. So basically right now, what you're mentioning, Valentina, is that we are going through a new reform. Uh, a new proposal was uh, presented in 2018 after a very long consultation where citizens really mobilized. There was a big campaign that you may have heard of in different countries in, in the EU. Uh, the campaign was called Living Land and it was translated in several languages. And there we tried to explain how crucial this policy um, and this reform specifically was going to be to all the citizens. So we collected a lot of signatures and we, it was one of the most answered consultations ever in the EU policy making history um, and we didn't get a too bad uh, communication at, at start so it seemed like the commission was ready to do some improvements and, and, and changes into this policy and then it turned out to be not so good as a proposal uh, back in 2018. And also it was the old commission. So what Madeleine explained before, the new commission uh, setting up this flagship, which is called the European Green Deal, um, with new objectives and set of direction for the union, those were not there. The political perspective was not there when this CAP um, proposal was put in the table for discussion. So this is one of the things that a lot of uh, stakeholder groups are now, you, you mentioned criticizing. Well, we would like to see a reflection on where we're going as a union and what our policies are going. And actually, we're discussing something that was put on the table before the European Green Deal was there. So this is one of the areas of, of main concern. Another of the areas of concern it's um, it's it's quite technical. Uh, I'm going to try to explain briefly. It's called an, an, the, the new delivery model. So it's a way in which the European Union will not so much condition the rules in a single legislation, but it will give the member states a lot of uh, freedom to to organize their own plans and their own common agricultural policy implementation in the ground. And this could be good in principle if we knew that governments were able to involve citizens and, and reflect all our worries into um, publicly supporting the kind of agriculture and, and diets that we want. But uh, it's actually a very, it's in most of the cases, a very obscure negotiation to get to those plans. And we're already seeing some of the problems with this delivery model in which uh, now we are supposed to just trust that the right people would be at the table designing this in our countries. And in many member states, we hear it's not the case. So that's one of the other areas of main concern. Okay, and um, so I, I have actually a question about uh, yeah, the first point that you mentioned, so the fact that the cup is not really aligned with the uh, European New Green Deal. Um, so my question is, 
um, why is it like that? Because Europe uh, put efforts also in developing the, the Green Deal and the Farm to Fork strategy. And so for me, it doesn't really make sense that all this effort is not really uh, included in the new cup. So why, why do you think it's like that? It's, it is exactly one of the areas that we're trying to, to raise. We are trying to ask to the commission to really come up with a new proposal that it's fully aligned. There were other ways to get this alignment. And this is what caused uh, a mismatch between what was proposed and what is being discussed and what were the expectations to align it or not to the Green Deal. There were other options that came around by having, I mean, the proposal was on the table and then the member states had to discuss um, the, the text. And, and that's done always in, in, a, in a body that is called the Agricultural and Fisheries Council. So it's where all the agricultural ministers come together and discuss EU policies that affect agriculture and food. And they came with proposals to really water down already farther the proposal from the Commission from 2018. And another legislator that comes in the picture is the European Parliament. And they could have voted to include in the proposal that was there before the Green Deal to include some targets and to include the Farm for Biodiversity direction and the European Green Deal um, climate-related um, uh, targets. And they, they, they could have tried to put some amendments, that's how it's called, to amend this proposal and to make it better. But what happened three weeks ago, so this is in October 2020, um, it's that actually we saw both the Agrifish Council with the ministers and the European Parliament in practice voting for a proposal that was even less ambitious than what the Commission had envisaged in 2018. So this is why we're saying, okay, there was a potential to align the cap to the Farm to Fork and the European Green Deal. This potential is no longer there because they have now voted to take down every amendment that included that. So how is that going to be achieved? And there is a bit of a trick there, Valentina, in 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 how they, they perceive that it's still possible to get this uh, cap amended through now the final negotiation, which has started, and it's called trilogues. Trilogues is like a, it's a conversation between the three then the three bodies. And they still think that they can get a very good framework so that each member state will be able to do great uh, proposals for their own plans for the cap in their countries. But what we hear from citizens in the ground is that they are barely involved in these discussions at member state level, that they do not have the technical knowledge or the capacity to engage to a meaningful way, and that basically the same people with the same old policy will be the ones drafting what's going to happen in each member state. And we are really worried about that. Okay, so from what I understand now, it's like a bit too late to withdraw the, the cup because now well, it has already been been voted yes i mean you're, you're right to say is it too late well it's a question like legally we have heard uh from civil society organizations that have worked together with uh, advisors with legal advisors there is precedent when the parliament and the council dilute so much a proposal from the commission that the commission would consider that they no longer recognize that and they don't think it's going in the right direction, they could withdraw 
the file. They, that's why this hashtag has been going around about we throw the cup because it's technically and legally possible. It's more than a political question. Would that um, make the the discussions and having to start from from where we were in 2017? Is that a too long of a gap? to leave the, the cap not discussed? Is there a political will to do this or not? There's other questions, but it's actually still possible. And it's something that, depending on how the trilogue is going, it's something that could still happen. What would you suggest us doing now? So like really um, standing up <laughs> against <laughs> like the new cap proposal and make sure that it's withdrawn or uh, engage more with local governments uh, and make sure that the the member states are actually the ones that set uh, stricter uh, targets i i think it's a very good question is the, the answer is that it's not one or the other <laughs> we need all the strength we can to both make sure that if First, if the cap can be withdrawn and we can get a better proposal on the table that is fully aligned to the to the European Green Deal, that we get that. If it's not happening, we need to keep the pressure so that the Commission can be really showing ambition in the negotiations and try to get the best parts of what's left from the European Parliament and the Agri-Fish Council um, opinions and, and reports. And yet, uh, the, the engagement in the member state level is going to be absolutely crucial. It has already started. I mean, whomever is listening to this now, they must know there is someone in your country who is trying to either get engaged or involved in the CAP strategic plan drafting, um, uh, or they're already part of the consultation team set up by the government. There is different procedures, but like, please, uh, like ask. Uh, your organization, your closest organization, Slowfoot, if it's uh, someone that is close to you, they will be able to direct you in the in the right direction to be part of this discussion. Um, but then there is like a final moment that we can still as citizens do something is we have to remember that the European Commission will have to approve every plan that comes from the member states. So there will be a final possibility to really signal what's not okay, what's going to be proposed and is not okay in each member state so that we can all together make sure that that's heard and that the commission can put a ban to that and send back the plan until things are amended and right. Yeah, and maybe I can just follow up on that, on what Slow Food is doing, because indeed we kind of have these two objectives now and it's difficult maybe to, to combine both. But on the one hand, uh, yes, like Ines said, we need to, to push for the Commission to uh, examine the question of withdrawing the cap altogether. At the same time, we also think it's uh, absolutely key right now to be putting pressure on the different member states to make sure that their national strategic plans are really ambitious um, so actually in a couple of weeks, we have a conference that we're organizing, which is open to the public so anyone can come and, and listen, 
uh, where we will have um, some representatives of different ministries from countries in the EU, uh, perhaps Italy and Germany as it stands now. And our goal will be to ask them and challenge them a bit to know what are they going to do uh, and what are they going to put in their national strategic plans in order to meet the ambition of the Green Deal and the Farm to Fork strategy. And uh, there's different initiatives that are happening where Soul Food is, is involved in some of them and others not, but civil society is mobilizing to put pressure on the different uh, national governments. So for example, on pesticides, there's letters that are being sent to the different agricultural and uh, environmental ministries to ask How are you planning on meeting the target of 50% reduction of uh, pesticides use use um, in the EU? What is Austria or Italy or Germany doing uh, to mobilize and to uh, propose the right measures in order to meet that target? Uh, and so these are ways that we can uh, put the pressure and um, make sure that they're making the right decisions right now. How do you get in touch with the local governments in uh, in this sense like who is like the yeah the representative that we can really reach out to So maybe just uh, from from Brussels uh it's kind of easy for us because we have uh different NGOs working together they that have experience in um in putting their efforts together and in sending letters but essentially it, it's quite simple um you we can we write letters um on our computers that are then sent as a PDF uh with an email address to uh the different ministries in in question uh so it's about finding the right contact in in the ministries but also um, it can be quite high high level I think what's important here and maybe Ines can can help expand on this is to give legitimacy to the letter for example from Brussels the way that we do this is by collecting signatures from many different uh, organizations sometimes also from national uh, coalitions of NGOs so um, this also shows like the power of uh, civil society movements when they come together that's when the letter has more weight and the the calls that we make have more weight yes uh, maybe I, just to add there that the civil society organizations that uh, we are working at brussels level but that we have i mean many of them are umbrella organizations and they have their offices also set in their in the member states we try to do as much as um, collaboration in drafting this and make sure that then there is some sort of public awareness campaign next to each of these policy actions. So it's not, I understand the question, Valentina, it's not so easy as if anyone listening could, could just, you know, pick up the computer and, and send an email and ask about the process, although they could. I mean, every ministry right now with these technologies we have, we can just find any contact and it's your uh, right to ask about this process because it's absolutely influencing you. But then we have always um, find member states that are more open to this kind of Uh, citizens' uh, questions than others and to make the cup more digestible than others. So a good example would be right now what ha is happening in France is that they have started a public consultation for the whole citizenship uh, that is called Impactum. So it's like let's have impact in, in French, but it has the CAP uh, Um, letters within that word. And it's a platform that includes also workshops, debates, online discussions, uh, gathering uh, through surveys, feedback. So it's a really a, a, a consultation that is very well 
organized. For some other countries and member states, we are hearing that on the contrary, even the most rooted organizations with long experience doing advocacy and policy work for years, they're not managing to get a meeting with the Ministry of Agriculture or to get hold on any of the drafts that are being prepared for the CAP strategic plan. So in those scenarios, when there is no an easy access to do raise questions and, and access your governments directly, it's crucial, it's crucial to to do networking, to find a, an organization that will be part of this umbrella network. And we are many, many working on the CAP and we will be coming with proposals and advancing a bit the work. What is crucial is that there is enough interest to follow up uh, on the actions we are making and to multiply and to raise the awareness among other people uh, that are not yet concerned, to raise it on social media, to sign petitions when we set them up, etc. So it's a bit of an effort to really follow on the file, but it would be a very amazing first step. Yeah, sure. It's an effort, but it's worth doing it right now, right? <laughs> also because like the, the new cup is going to... For uh, how many years does it... Uh, it's, Does it last? Every policy cycle, it's uh, lasts for about seven years. But then we also have these mm -hmm. uh, small tricks, like we are hearing now that the old cap uh, is going to be um, enlarged for two more years. So then, before it was envisaged to only last for seven, and because the new cap is not ready, they have approved now to this to, for this transition period in which the old rules will apply. So every time you get a regulation on the table, it can last for longer than you expect. So you better get it right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One more reason to, to have it right. Thank you so much for all this information. And now I also gathered some questions from the network. And the first question is from Alice Poiron. Will the new cap change anything about what food I will be able to buy? So this is a very, very concrete question. <laughs> yes, thanks for this question. Um, well, the, the cap, I mean, the question goes about the new cap, but I mean, I hope that the person who made the, the question knows that the cap is already conditioning many of the aspects around the food uh, choices we have. Um, it's well, it's the European agricultural policy. It has lots of implications regarding, you know, the food production methods, the way we use our land, how we protect or not our environment and which are the consumption patterns. So all of these budgets, I think I didn't mention it before, but it's, um, a bit more than a third of the whole European budget goes to the common agricultural policy. So, of course, it has implications on what we are able to eat uh, and, and put in our table. We hope to have a different cup that uh, would give money to farmers who produce food in a more sustainable way and would reward these farmers who really are doing efforts and paying attention to welfare of animals and you know, to uh, maintain certain um, production methods that are not industrial. Um, for instance, we're reducing pesticides, uh, producing organic, etc. But it's not the direction we are seeing. Um, the CAP is now under, you know, this discussion that we mentioned, and the CAP strategic plan will condition even further 
the way that the cup is implemented in our countries and potentially what you will be able to buy and eat. Uh, and even if you don't want to buy it on the store, if you want to be part of a community-supported agriculture farm, or if you want to access to cooperative to to gather your veggies uh, in at the end of the week, or all of these aspects are also part of the CAP because they could be supported through what's called the second pillar of the CAP. So the one that it's uh, getting additional funding from the member states and that is giving like a lot of other possible rules. Um, um, I mean, other possible policies in place to get support for rural development, to get support for animal welfare, to get support for other infrastructures that are needed to supply food, uh, to protect um, uh, seeds and certain varieties. So we've seen a lot of good examples, actually. And if member states would pick those, then it could actually condition your food choices in a positive way. But um, if, if I have to go back to the question, what was really uh, framed within this new cap and what we're seeing, um, we we have we are too much relying now on the choices that each member state will make, and the hope is that uh, they will be doing the right ones. So we need lots of examples, and we need everyone to keep doing the the good practices they are doing to engage with the farmers, to buy local production, to fight for the things they care about, and to support these policy claims um, from the organizations. And I think that will be the way that we will be able to change uh, somewhat the agricultural policy. The second question is from Nicolas Dabar. There is an increase in demand uh, in France of organic bakery products, but the organic flour production in France is not enough to meet the demand, so we need to import it from abroad. What is the reason behind it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, Valentina. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to lie, I had uh, this question, uh, you, you shared the question with me yesterday, so it gave me the opportunity to do a bit of research, because this isn't something that I was able to answer immediately, but it's a super interesting question. There's clearly a demand for organic uh, products, and yet we're not always able to meet it. Uh, so what I found is that the organic industry is one of the most rapidly expanding sectors of the food industry in many European countries, but um, and the market, so the demand for organic food actually doubled between 2007 and 2016 and it's growing faster and faster every year um, and France so the, the baker that just asked this question was asking about France and it's actually the second biggest consumer of organic food in Europe after Germany so I found that um, according to IFOM so organic Europe that represents organic farmers across Europe the growth of organic farmland in the EU is not increasing at the same pace as the organic retail market, uh, which is exactly what our baker is saying. Um, so the dynamic growth of the organic market uh, has resulted in more and more imports um, because we're not able to meet the demand in Europe. And uh, they actually say, IFOM, that there's a severe risk that the growing demand for European organic markets could end up having to be met through imports if these trends continue. So this is what we're saying. Um, and like I said, I'm not very knowledgeable on the topic, so I had to do some research. But apparently uh, the yield of organic production for, I mean, we some of us already know this, of course, but the yield of organic production is lower than conventional farming for certain products. And so there's a gap uh, in the yield um, between organic and conventional production uh, that can 
you know, be very big or very small according to the type of food, the type of the country, the region where it's being produced. And actually for wheat, it seems that it can be quite a significant gap. So it means that organic farming of wheat uh, to become flour um, might be significantly lower than um, the yield in, um, in conventional farming. But again, this changes per country. So it was saying, for example, that in Germany, the, this gap is much bigger than, for example, in Italy, where organic um, farming of, um, of wheat is actually not so far off conventional yields. And there are different ways to bridge this gap. Um, so, for example, looking into research and innovation. And by research and innovation, I don't mean GMOs, um, but it means uh, how do we make uh, organic production um, more productive per land, for example. And it also doesn't mean that it's not profitable for farmers to produce organic wheat because it's often offset by a higher price uh, for consumers that consumers are willing to pay. That's why there's such a high uh, increase in the demand for organic food. But it can definitely be one element as to explain why we're not yet able to meet the demand, uh, the very high demand of organic wheat and flour. But I think maybe to put it back into context, uh, what this comes down to is that the food systems that we have today in France and elsewhere in Europe are not really yet perfectly designed to reward farmers that are farming in a more ecological way, uh, for example, without the use of pesticides. So we still have a system, like Ines explained, that gives subsidies to farmers in function of their productivity and in function of the area of land that they have. And we don't really have a system yet that properly encourages and rewards farmers for using production methods based on living ecological systems, using integrated pest management systems, etc. The good news is that the farm to fork strategy does include a, a concrete objective and the aim to increase the production and the consumption of organic food. So both uh, production and consumption. It proposes a de to develop a new action plan on organic farming And it has a target of reaching 25% of the EU's agricultural land under organic farming by 2030. So that's 25% in 2030 compared to 7% in 2017 only. And on the demand side, for example, the strategy also proposes to increase the proportion of organic food available uh, in schools and other public institutions through public procurement. Um, In our opinion, it's, it's not enough uh, to just set a target to reduce pesticide use and then, you know, punish the farmers that continue to use them. We have to make sure that the EU and the different member states are also making sure that there are alternatives to farmers so that they no longer have to depend on the use of pesticides. And of course, um, for us, for slow food, it's incredibly important to make sure that it's affordable for farmers to make this transition away from using pesticides um, and uh, to make a, this transition towards more complex systems, but that are based on working with nature rather than on chemical inputs. So I don't have a super specific answer to, to uh, our organic baker, uh, specifically on wheat and in France, but here are already some, uh, some elements. No, yeah, of course, I think you you answered uh, a lot of interesting information and uh, about the, um, the target of the farm to fork strategy to increase of at least 25% the uh, EU ag agricultural land dedicated to organic farming this target is not included in the new cap proposal i guess yes uh, exactly so the, the none of the numerical targets from the farm to fork are going to be found 
anywhere. They are aspirational targets. <laughs> so they are, they say that they set the direction and they are supposed to inform every piece of legislation and action that will be following the farm to fork strategy. Um, all of these uh, actions that Madeleine mentioned being in the annex of the communication of the farm to fork, but others as well. Um, what we have tried and what we were expecting is that at least the parliament would have made that requirement uh, specific, that they would have linked the new common agricultural policy with this, uh, any of the numerical aspirational targets in a way either to evaluate what the member states are sending or to evaluate the progress of the CAP implementation and where the funding is going and which kind of practices it's uh, supporting. Uh, but actually, that's what we didn't manage to pass. That's what the uh, the Parliament and the Council have been negotiating to not include in the proposal. So right now, we don't have any hook on how these are going to be integrated and how the alignment is going to be checked. We depend now on a one single action from the Farm to Fork strategy that did mention that the Commission was entitled to send recommendations to the Member States when they are elaborating their CAP strategic plan regarding how to meet those European targets. But those are not going to be, those recommendations are not going to be binding either. Uh, at least they will be made public and they will be made a specific trying to assess the baseline of each member state and try to push a change in the direction after the next funding period and think. Uh, while the next cap will be implemented. So member states should, in principle, be able to show that with the cap that will come and with the budget that will come, things should improve and there should be a reduction in pesticides use. There should be um, uh, enlargement of uh, organic land uh, area. There should be a reduction on antimicrobials that are used in, in our uh, animal farming, etc. But will we get it? We are not sure. That's why we are still fighting. Thank you, Ines, for replying to, to this question. And now we have another question from the network, and in particular from Linda Bidoué, uh, who is a vegetable grower and a seed guardian in uh, Normandy in France. Despite citizen support and that of farmers who want change, the cap is not changing courses. What is left as an option? I think we, we already kind of answered about it, but maybe we can answer again very, very shortly. Yes, I will be very short. Um, I, I, I would just uh, maybe challenge a bit the question, if I may, because there are efforts from citizens. They have been a lot of, uh, there has been support. For instance, I mentioned the campaign Living Land in 2017 uh, and some of the letters that are then co-signed by many civil society organizations that in a way represent citizens. So there is awareness, but the CAP is still very complex, is very complex and very difficult difficult to campaign for this. It's even this podcast right now, whomever wants to listen through it and maybe read all some materials that there are to get informed about the cup, it takes a lot of effort. Um, and it's difficult to then do public citizen um, campaigning that the politicians perceive as a real request. 
because then it it seems that it's very much detached from the file itself. It just goes so into technical chapters that it's very difficult to to tell them to tell politicians that what they are discussing is the same that really the citizens are fighting for in the in the streets in their food choices in their networks that uh talking about food is talking about the CAP and this is something that we haven't really communicated well enough to both citizens and politicians that actually they're concerned about each other and about what we're doing. So we can just say um, the cap is not changing, but it's starting to change. And one breakthrough has been this this vote in the parliament three weeks ago. It's for the first time been heard and it's been multiplied and there's loudspeakers and this is every single person that is there uh, trying to raise awareness and, and supporting organizations doing the work we're trying to do uh, and the campaigns we're trying to set up. So it will change uh, and the Farm to Fork will be another hook uh, to to play to base this this change on, uh, but we just need the support and the and understanding and the patience because it's just a very complex file and there is a lot of interest um, around it and it's going to be a very difficult it's been a very difficult fight. So it's a difficult fight, but there is still hope. Of course, of course, things are going in the right direction, Valentina. That's no doubt. Um, we, we are advancing. Glad to hear that. And um, so I also have another question, slightly changing topic. Slow Food uh, has joined and has been campaigning for the uh, ECI to save bees and farmers. And the question is, can you tell us something more about how this European Citizens Initiative works and also how it is related to the Farm to Fork strategy and also to the CAP? Yeah, uh, I'll take this one, uh, Valentina. So the ECI, um, it stands for European Citizens Initiative, and it's actually a tool proposed by the European Commission to allow to call to allow citizens to call directly on the European Commission to make new proposals uh, for laws. So an ECI is essentially a European-wide petition. And if it collects one million signatures, it has the power to get the European Commission to act in a certain way. Um, so Slow Food is part of the ECI called uh, Save Bees and Farmers. Um, and um, basically the ECI makes three demands. Uh, the first is that um, it demands to have a target to reduce pesticide use by 80% by 2030 and to phase out synthetic pesticides completely by 2035 in the EU. Um, we know that uh, pesticides are very toxic to pollinators and coupled with industrial farming, bees and pollinators are disappearing. Um, the ECI's second demand is to have more measures to protect biodiversity, as we know and we're all aware of the uh, biodiversity, uh, the huge biodiversity loss that, that is happening and that we're experiencing today. And thirdly, uh, the, the third demand is that farmers must be supported in the ne uh, necessary transition towards agroecology. So, for example, by investing more in research into pesticide-free and GMO-free agriculture and to develop agroecology. Slow Food has been involved in a couple of other ECIs uh, in the past. Uh, two of them 
uh, have been successful. They stopped glyphosate ECI that maybe you've already heard of, which was a couple of years ago. And uh, more recently, uh, the ECI the uh, and the cage age, which was about uh, banning the use of cage for farmed animals. Um, both of the ECIs collected more than a million signatures, which is really impressive. So the ECI Save Bees and Farmers were still in it. Uh, there's uh, It's being promoted by over 150 organizations across the EU, and we're nearly at uh, 500,000 signatures, despite uh, COVID and the fact that we couldn't collect signatures uh, in the streets like is usually done. So your question was, um, how does it relate to the farm-to-fork and uh, the cap? So as I mentioned earlier, the farm-to-fork proposes a target to reduce pesticide use by 50% compared to 80% asked by the ECI. Um, and the farm-to-fork includes different proposals for regulations to be reformed and updated in order to meet the target. On the one hand, um, the ECI would have liked to see a higher target in the farm-to-fork strategy, but we are you know, we're, we're going to get involved in pushing for the right reforms that can really drive the phase out of pesticides and promote agroecology. Um, and if our ECI is successful, it's going to stand, uh, send a really strong message to the Commission and to member states that they need to do more to drive this, tr this transition because civil society has spoken. Um, regarding the cap, as Ines explained earlier, each member state is uh, writing their own strategic plans and uh, we need to push for each country to include national targets on pesticide reduction in their plan and follow through with measures to meet these targets. So even if um, the targets of the farm to fork strategy are not technically legally binding, Citizens can urge their national ministries, uh, as we already said uh, before, uh, to listen to their concerns about the health of the environment and their own health. And if the ECI is successful, this is another legitimate tool that we can use, you know, to push for these demands. Um, so my final message on this is that, uh, like I said, we're nearly at 500,000. So to everyone who's listening, go and check out the ECI website, uh, or even better, go and check the Slow Food ECI page and go sign the ECI. And then, even better, go and share it on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We're posting lots of posts every week. Um, and ask your friends to sign, ask your parents to sign. And uh, we really need to get to that million because so far we're not impressed by how the cap is going. And if we don't do anything, we really can't expect any changes. Okay, I can also add the link to the uh, to the Slow Food website uh, in the description of the podcast so that our listeners can click directly there and sign for the petition. That would be great. Until when can we do that? Uh, so for now, it's until the end of March uh, because we got an extension uh, because of COVID. It's not impossible that they will extend it again, but let's keep end of March 2021 in mind. Okay, perfect. So we have still some time to, to reach our goal. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Okay, so uh, Ines and Madeleine, thank you so much for this interview. To do like a, a very short summary of our uh like concrete actions that we can do as a citizen. First of all, we, we still have some hope, so we still can change things, which is good to hear. And we can still push the commission to withdraw the cap. We can put pressure on member states. The easiest thing would be to join local organizations and network together and together send letters to the ministers in our local governments that are dealing with that specific uh, targets that we ask to meet. 
And then the last concrete thing that we can do is to sign the ECI petition, uh, which I repeat, I will add the link in the podcast description. Um, did I forget anything? Yeah, maybe just from my side, one point is, uh, yeah, absolutely get involved in your local uh, organizations, the local Slow Food chapter, if there's one uh, where you live, um, and also continue to vote with your fork in the meantime. Uh, those uh, both actions are absolutely uh, linked and key. And if we're driving demand on one side, uh, we also have to continue pushing for policy change, but both go hand in hand. I think uh, not to lose faith that we are going in the right direction, Valentina, and that every person that cares about food systems and policy really matters for this. So we really thank you for the work and, and the awareness raising. And I'm going to myself uh, sign the, the ACI petition right now and share it on social media. And if our listeners would like to support the work you are doing with the EU Food Policy Coalition and with the uh, Slow Food uh, Europe office in Brussels, how, how can they do that? Or how can they reach out to you maybe if they have uh, further questions? If I may start, the, um, the we have a webpage, EU Food Policy Coalition, that explains which organizations are participating in this coalition and also displays the work we're doing in advocacy so the joint outputs and letters that they could be a good reference um, to use as examples for example um, but actually joining any of the organizations or getting in touch with any of the organizations that you will find are participating within the coalition is the direct way to to collaborate because we work for all of these civil society organizations and I think um, I mean Slow Food is there but uh, many others are as well so take a look and see if you're already having a local contact that can link you in uh, also personal de details are there to contact directly if needed uh, email address and everything so get uh, active and and see you around perfect i will also add the web page uh, of the european food policy coalition in the podcast description so that our listening can uh, click directly there and go and look and uh, look for the uh, local organization uh, that is closer to them and so that they can get in touch directly And Madeleine, how can we support the Slow Food Europe uh, work and how can we reach out to you? Um, you can reach out to me at my email address, um, which should be available on our website. And also just get involved in one of your local Slow Food chapters. Um, you can always yeah, get in touch with us. Also every year, I mean, we didn't speak about this at all, but um, we have uh, different uh, campaigns um, related to the CAP and other policy uh, topics. And we often ask our, um, our network to get involved in these campaigns. And maybe you heard about the Good Food, Good Farming campaign in, uh, that just happened in October. It's every uh, October, and this is a really concrete way for citizens to get involved in the debate around the cap. Uh, it's once a year, all over October, uh, all over Europe. So that's another way to get involved. Perfect. I will add also all these links that you mentioned to the uh, Slow Food website, the Slow Food Europe website, and also the Good Food, Good Farming campaign website. So we have all the information in, in there. And really, thank you so much again for uh, for all the interview. You really 
clarified <laughs> everything for me at least um, about the cup, the farm to fork strategy, and also you gave me a lot of hope. And I hope also that uh, this uh, feeling will uh, be shared also uh, by the listeners of this podcast. And um, I also remind you that uh, in this period, Slow Food is having a very big online event, which is called Terra Madre, uh, in which you can uh, listen to different debates, workshops, conferences, and there will be also some uh, debates regarding European policy, right, Madeleine? Yeah, absolutely. I mentioned one earlier, it's on the 24th of November, and we have one on the upcoming Tuesday, uh, November 20, uh, 17th. Okay, perfect. So I will also add these links. So guys, if you are interested in the topic, you can also listen to, to these uh, conferences and get even more uh, involved. So thank you so much again, and thank you for the, the work that you are doing. And yeah, let's hope that we can really achieve to have a better and more sustainable food system in Europe altogether. Thanks so much, Valentina. Thank you both.